Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I'm going to invite our pastor, Billy Glosson, to come up. He's going to be walking us through the word this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. You are so faithful. You are so gracious and merciful. I'm reminded of it when I'm driving in the morning and I see the mountains. I'm especially reminded of it today as we gather in this space for the first time. I pray that as we sit under the word today that you would open our hearts, that you would challenge us, that you you would exhort us. Lord, that Billy would be clear-minded, he would be patient, he would be wise and discerning, and that we would be the same. And that as we begin exploring um, what your offices mean for us in everyday life, Lord, that we would learn more about you and we would be we'd be falling in more in love with the gospel every single day of our lives. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Um, you guys can be seated. I'm going to hand that to you. Awesome. So yeah, we are starting a new sermon series today on Sunday morning, which we're excited about. Um, if you're like me and you have children, you understand why Sunday evening can be difficult. So um, that being said, we are going to be taking the next several weeks to be walking through a series uh, called Jesus, the Name Above Every Name, to look at the offices, the ministry, the life of Jesus. So I had a really proud parent moment the other night. We were talking to our little girl, and she asked me if we could read more of the Chronicles in Arnia. And I looked at Hannah and I was like, I did it. <laughs> I did it. See, a couple months back, I made the choice to start reading The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe with our little girl. Yes, I picked that one first. Those of you who love Narnia and you like other books, you can at me later, um, which I won't see because I'm not on social media right now. <laughs> so if you've never read the sweeping epic of Peter, Susan, Lucy, and Edmund, and really seen just all the awesomeness that is there, I would highly recommend it to you. Read the books. It's better than the Disney movies that they gave up on. That's how not – they're okay. They're all right. If you like them, it's okay. But C.S. Lewis wrote this incredibly epic tale, which serves as an allegory to Jesus. We see in Aslan the lion a Christ figure that will ultimately triumph over the white witch. And I think we all love stories like that, right? We love these stories of good triumphing over evil. But today we come to a passage that really serves as a sweeping prelude to the greatest story, the greatest conflict and victory ever in Jesus Today, again, we're starting our series called Jesus, the name above every name. And we're going to be taking this from, uh, I don't want to claim credit for the way this is orchestrated. Instead, we got a series from Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson that did this incredible work of outlining these offices. So just to give credit where it's due, you can check them out. It's amazing. But we chose this specific sermon series. We chose to walk through scripture and see different things that Christ has done for us because of the season we are in. So we are, as a church, um, globally in the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is a season of reflection, a season of remembrance in the church, where specifically we recount the 40-day fast that Jesus undertook in the wilderness. We consider his sacrificial life because uh, we want to reflect on Jesus, his goodness, his gloriousness. And oftentimes, many people choose to fast in various forms in this season, which leads up to Easter, where we celebrate It's meant to be a season of self-examination where we seek the Lord. We ask him to shape us into the image of Jesus. And so 
We want to align our hearts with the life, with the sufferings of Jesus as we move closer and closer to Easter week. So during this time of reflection, we're going to look at Jesus. Again, Jesus has been given the name above all names. He's been given the highest seat of honor. He's been given the right to rule, the right to reign. And so often we are so busy. We have so many distractions in our world. And it takes us away from knowing the most important person that we could ever know. And we want to utilize this series to help us see and to meditate on who Jesus is, to meditate on his matchless character. And we're going to do this by looking at seven key qualities of Jesus's identity and his ministry so that we can focus our gaze upon the King of Kings and understand just how great Jesus truly is. So today we're going to start at the beginning. We're going to just hop right into Genesis and we're going to see that Jesus is the seed of the woman. So we go back to the garden first and we look at our text again and we see God speaks to the serpent in the Garden of Eden. And this is what he says after the serpent had just tempted Adam and Eve successfully. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I think many of us know this story, right? We know the conflict. God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, in this beautiful, amazing garden. Every tree in the garden, man, it looks good. It looks like there's delicious fruit everywhere. But there's one tree in the garden which God says, hey, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you will die. And there are two things that we can glean from God's command to Adam and Eve. The first thing is this, and this is huge for us to know this. God did not create us to know evil. That's huge that we know that. I could spend a long time on this, but I want that to hit you deep in your soul. The brokenness that you encounter, the pain around you, God did not make you to know that. That brings us to our second observation. This is a call from God to Adam and Eve. It's a call to obedience and faith. God was calling Adam, he was calling Eve to trust in him and to trust that he is indeed good. It was as if God were saying, hey, look, now prove your love for me. Show your trust in me. Show your obedience to me as a generous God. Not because you can tell the difference between that tree and any other tree, but because simply I, as your father, have told you, trust me and obey me with respect to this one tree. It's a call to a life of faith. Right at the beginning of the Bible to the end is the same call for us, a life of faith. It's just like the old hymn says, trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. But the serpent appears and the serpent sings a different song. He says, trust me and obey for there's no other way to be happy without God except to do what I say. The serpent asks, hey, did God set you in this garden full of all these amazing, glorious trees and all this delicious fruit and then say, hey, you can't eat any of the fruit of these trees? We know that's not what God says. And of course, Eve tried to argue with him, but she failed and she's eventually drawn into his scheme. She was seeing the significance of the tree. Catch this through her eyes instead of her ears. Now, I know that sounds weird, but hear me. You see, instead of listening to what God said about it, she thought only about in terms of what she could see. After all, I mean, this tree looks delicious, right? She's a little hungry. It looks attractive. She beholds the gaze of the tree. 
But there's a divine principle that she had not grasped. You see, friend, believers, we see with our ears, not with our eyes. We listen to God's word. And this, of course, is always, always the serpent's trick. He twists truth to appeal to us. He uses Eve. He uses God's very good gift to Adam to gain leverage on Adam and entice him to sin. So Adam and Eve brought our whole world to ruin. And God confronts all of them on the matter. And immediately, what happens? Finger pointing, right? It's like when, I, when you confront your kid and you're like, hey, what did you just do? Well, like the cat was in here and it ran. You know, that's kind of what happens. Adam points at Eve. Eve points at the serpent. And then God gives them three words of judgment. The first thing he says is there's a judgment on Adam relating to his task of gardening and his calling to turn the whole world into a garden for God. There's a judgment on Eve related in particular to childbearing and towards her attitude towards her husband, right? And all married people said, amen. There's a judgment on the serpent. And amazingly, this judgment on the serpent, it contains in it a seed of glorious gospel hope. I will put enmity, I will put conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring seed and her offspring seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What we see here is the promise of conflict between the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The climax of this conflict is destined to be far more personal and individual between the seed of the woman and the serpent itself. Each would crush the other. But whereas the serpent is only going to crush the heel of the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, which is a blow that would prove to be fatal. So if I were to stop for a minute and say, hey, why did Jesus come? Right. Why did the son of God appear? I think everybody in this room could give multiple different answers as to why Christ came. But in 1 John 3, we get John's answer. And this is what he says in 1 John 3.8. He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is the first dimension, the first facet, right? If you were to look at a diamond, there are multiple faces. It's a multifaceted. There's many ways to behold its beauty. And that is the case with the gospel. You see, John saw the prophecy of Genesis 3 fulfilled in our Redeemer, Jesus. When Christ appeared, what he came to do was to undo what the serpent had done. He does this by his life and ministry, but ultimately through his death and resurrection. He destroyed all the works of the devil. So how do these words illuminate the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ for us? Well, I think when you and I, we we talk about Jesus, we talk about salvation, we use words like forgiveness, we use words like justification, right? And I think that's good and true, rightly so. But notice with me, there's no mention in Genesis 3 of forgiveness or justification. Does that mean that those things don't matter? Absolutely, they matter, right? They absolutely do. But God's words here place a lot of emphasis on conflict. I will put enmity and therefore on our need to be delivered from the bondage to the evil one. So that we are no longer prisoners, right? We read this in Ephesians of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. So right here in these words, at the very almost beginning of Genesis, we have an important insight into the entire message of the Bible. 
The Bible was a library of books. It, it, it traces an age-long cosmic conflict between these two seeds. Genesis 3.15 has long been referred to, this big, huge word. It's called Proto-Evangelium. And what that means is this. It's the first announcement of the good news of the gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first time you and I get gospel. Right? Sin enters in, and it's not long before God says, I'm going to do something about this. Here is where we see the earliest promise that Jesus is coming. It's a prophecy that this will be an extended conflict. There is conflict, there's enmity between the serpent and Eve, and there is enmity between these two family lines. And it will lead to a finale. The woman's offspring, her seed, will, will crush the head of the serpent. So we consider our enemy, right? Throughout scripture, we see this conflict. And actually, we see it vividly expressed in the book of Revelation. If you look and you flip over to Revelation 12, you see a dramatic picture of this ages-long conflict where it reaches its ultimate climax. The writer John, he sees a great red dragon that devours humanity. This is the ancient serpent who is called the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he has spiritually devoured so many of us, so many human beings. The serpent of Eden has grown now into a large dragon. In fact, this apocalyptic vision of Revelation 12, it's almost like a movie version of Genesis 3.15. We we get to watch this dramatic, high-def, full-color, special-effect prophecy, this ongoing conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and its final outcome. Right? There's a reason we like action movies. Right? There's a reason we like it when the good guy wins. Because it's woven throughout our entire being. It's woven throughout the scriptures that Jesus has come to put the devil to rest. He will win. This is the underlying plot line of the whole Bible. It's what brings us to see second that Jesus, he is the snake crusher. He's the snake crusher. We have to remember the conflict foretold in Genesis. When you and I, we read the Gospels, we've got to have that conflict in mind. Because there's this conflict with the enemy that's a major underlying theme throughout the entire life and ministry of Jesus. Its presence, it runs through every single page of Christ's story. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the beginning of the New Testament, they are the story of Jesus' life. But they're also the story of Jesus's conflict with the seed of the serpent. And we see this, whether it's in the form of demons or in those who incite hostility against him or in their efforts to wreck Jesus's own followers, his disciples, Peter, Judas. In the summary language of the aged John, right? He says in 1 John, he says the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So from the very beginning of the book, right, to the very end, from the Garden of Eden turned into a desert because of sin until in Revelation at the very end in 21 and 22, when that desert is turned back into a garden, the whole of the Bible is a story of conflict. It was promised to last throughout the ages until Jesus came. And then in his ministry, it enters into a critical phase. And we see this all over the New Testament, right? Paul writes to the Galatians and he says in chapter four that when the time had fully come, God sent his son. And he describes Jesus in two phrases that should cause us to stop. He says, born of a woman and born under the law. 
He's echoing Genesis 3.15. Throughout Scripture, okay, we see lineage traced through the male line. Whenever you see those long lists of names that make you go, yep, yeah, I'm going to flip over that in my Bible reading, right? Which don't, they're important. You know, get a commentary, it'll work through you, it'll be good. Usually you see that those names start with men. But God had said in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. It's like Paul is saying to us, hey, look, this is important. Do you see that in the incarnation, in Jesus becoming a man, who the seed, who the one born of the woman actually is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus is the seed of the woman. Jesus is the snake crusher. The gospels show us that in the ministry of Jesus, we see this promise of conflict come to a climatic point. Consider Jesus. As I mentioned, it's Lent. And we reflect on, we remember this 40-day fast, which is crazy to think about. Most of us fast for a day and we're like, oh, well, I mean, it's hard, right? Jesus does it for 40 days. And we see this temptation. We see that the serpent appears to tempt Jesus. And here's what I think happens. I think sometimes you and I, we read this and we make a mistake. And we think that the main reason that this is there is to teach us about our temptation and how we should resist them. Now, look, that's absolutely true. We should look at the life and ministry of Jesus as kind of a a call for us to see how we should live. We should see how Jesus withstood temptation. And it's a great example for us and how we should resist temptation. But the point is not to say Jesus was tempted and you are tempted just like him. So respond to temptation as he did. Okay, that would cheapen what's happening there. That would turn his temptation just into a mere example for us to emulate. No, we are told instead that the Holy Spirit led Jesus. Scripture says it drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus' temptations were not a series of just some unfortunate events that overtook him unexpectedly. They constitute this epic confrontation taking place within God's divine strategy. What we see here is Jesus, he is, he's work, his work of conflict, victory, and salvation. He comes face to face with his enemy, with Satan. He appeared to God as what scripture tells us later in Romans 5 specifically. He is the new man. He's the second Adam. And he's come to do what the old man, the first Adam, had failed to do. Jesus came to take possession of the world, to establish his kingdom. Jesus is going to repossess them in our name and for his father's pleasure and glory. Satan will be crushed underfoot. Reminds me of the words of poetry from J.H. Newman. Listen to this. It says, oh, loving wisdom of our God. When all was sin and shame, a second Adam came to the fight and to the rescue came. A wisest love that flesh and blood that did in Adam fail should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. This is why Jesus experienced such overwhelming weakness and hunger in contrast to Adam who enjoyed the plenty of the garden. This is why he faced temptation in the wilderness, not like Adam who was situated in a lovely and hospitable garden. This is why he was surrounded by wild animals, but not like Adam, who was surrounded by almost domesticated animals. You see, Jesus, the last Adam, had to conquer in the context of the chaos that the first Adam had brought into the world through his sin. So from the beginning of Jesus's ministry to his very end, here's what Jesus is doing. 
Jesus is marching against the power of darkness. Just, just for a moment. We hear all these stories in the gospel and we almost, we almost cutesy them up and we almost have this mentality of, oh, that was back then. But just be with me in this moment. Think of Mark chapter 5. There's the demoniac, this man who has been ravaged by chains and breaks them and is running around in the tomb like a madman. Jesus comes and he asks tenderly, what is your name? And the man replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Guys, a Roman legion, just like, hold on, just think about this for just a second. A Roman legion theoretically consisted of around 4,000 to 5,000 soldiers. What this man is saying is thousands of demons have invaded my life. Guys, we need to catch this for a moment. That's weird. Okay, we shouldn't just read that and go, neat story. No, that's really weird. Because it only takes one demon, one, to destroy a man. Why? Why have thousands of demons invaded him? Because Jesus was there. That's the whole point. This is not simply some poor man possessed by a legion of demons. That would be a ridiculously extravagant deployment of forces that Satan could never afford. No, this man, that's not why. The reason it's there is because they want to see the destruction of Jesus' ministry. Jesus is their ultimate target. The reason there's so much demon possession throughout the Gospels in this time period is not because sometimes people assume, oh, well, demon possession was just common back then. It wasn't. Rather, the land was demon invaded because the Savior was marching to victory. He was coming to crush the serpent and all hell was let loose to withstand him. And the demons always seemed to be screaming out, hey, have you come to destroy us? They knew that their fate was sealed and they were fighting. And this, op- this opposition, it d- doesn't always look like Jesus casting out demons. It came in more subtle ways as well. But think of the men that Jesus loved the most, Peter, James, and John. And Simon Peter echoes the serpent's temptation in the wilderness. Don't take the way of the cross, Jesus. But how resolved is Jesus? How clear-headed is Jesus to hear in Peter's words the accent of the serpent? And he says, get behind me, Satan. You see, Satan seems in the first half of Jesus' ministry to be pointing Jesus away from the cross. Don't do that. Don't go to the way of the cross. It's heavy. Right? He tempts him in the wilderness. You know, just, just bend the knee to me and you can have your kingdom. He does it through Peter. He does it through demons. But then... Once he realizes Christ's face is set towards the cross, he shifts in tactics. Satan shifts to get Jesus to the cross then as quickly as possible. Okay, well, you want to go to the cross? Let's get you there quickly. I'm going to subvert God's timing so that your death is going to be a terrible tragedy. It's not going to be an obedient saving ministry. And instead of using an unstable member of his disciples, Peter, he uses their trusted treasurer, Judas. You see, the disciples trusted Judas so implicitly. I think we need to, this should be weird as well. Like when you read again, the upper room account, Jesus is there and he's talking to them and he's he's breaking bread and Judas leaves and they just assume, oh, Judas is going to go do mercy ministry. That's how much they trusted this guy. And where he had failed, the enemy had failed with Simon Peter. He is going to indwell Judas and he's going to bring Jesus's demise in the garden of Gethsemane. He was going to use his power to crush Jesus' heel. 
But Jesus is about to crush his head. You see, where Adam conceded victory to Satan, Jesus always resisted him. Total obedience to his father. It marks the whole course of Jesus' life. Now, here some three years later, Jesus is also brought to a tree. He too faces temptation. But in this case, the temptation was not to eat of its poisonous fruit. You see, the obedience of the last Adam failed. And now this new Adam is going to make all things new. See, the first Adam followed in the pathway on which his wife's senses had led her. He saw it. He smelled it. He tasted it rather than hearing the word of God. But when the second man, the new man comes, he was brought to the Calvary tree. He faces a reverse mirror image of the first man's temptation. There's nothing in the first tree that leads Adam instinctively to go, I don't want to eat that. No, everything about it draws him in. It's delicious looking. It's appetizing. And so it is that in the second tree, that there's nothing that would attract Jesus to it. It's repulsive fruit of God forsakenness. It's an accursed tree. There's not a bone in Jesus' body, not an ounce of his flesh, not an affection in his soul that could ever be instinctively willing to experience this sense of abandonment by God. Everything in Jesus shrunk from that because he loved his father. Jesus had to not want to eat the fruit of the tree with his whole being and yet be willing to eat it. He willed to be obedient when he did not want to be forsaken. And is it any wonder that Jesus prays, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. See the contrast between Adam and Jesus. Put it up on the screen here. There are two persons. There's Adam the first and Adam the last, Adam the second. There are two places. There's the forbidden tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And for Jesus, there's the accursed tree of the cross. There's two commands. Do not eat the fruit. Drink what is in the cup. There are two desires. Adam wants to eat it. Jesus does not want to drink this cup. But there are two actions. Adam the first disobeys God. But Adam the last, Jesus the Son of God, obeys. And there are two results. Adam brings into our world sickness, suffering, sin, death. But Jesus brings about life. Life. This is the reason that Paul says this in Philippians 2.8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was willing to take the divine curse, although everything in him, every holy desire longed for and deserved divine blessing. He took our place. Who can fathom the mystery of his sense of desolation, of alienation from heaven's glory? He bore the curse all for love's sake. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. It's here that we see Jesus' fulfillment brings us to our third point. He reveals the serpent's lie. Jesus reveals the serpent's lie. Paul describes our fall. He describes our fall in these terms. He says this in Romans 1 verse 25. 
Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So what was the lie? This surely, right? The serpent said to Eve, your God has set you. He set you in this garden. He's given you so many rich and attractive trees, so much luscious, delicious fruit. But what he's really saying is I'm surrounding you with all these beautiful and delicious things, but you can't have any of them. Do you see the satanic innuendo here? Listen, God is cynical. He doesn't want the best for you. He doesn't give the best to you. He's toying with you for his own sick, malicious pleasure. He doesn't really love you. He despises you. Guys, the lie is simply this. God is not good. That's the lie that the serpent seeks to speak to our heart, that God is not good. The rest is history. Eve struggled with the temptation, but the poisonous thought was already injected into her now confused mind, into her affections, into her will. And from there, it's passed down into our bloodstream. It's in our system now. It's the twist within us that leads us to not believe, to not trust that God himself, that everything, absolutely everything he is, everything he does, everything he says, everything he commands, everything he promises is good. Have you ever heard someone say, man, I can't trust the God of the Bible because I believe in a God of love. The truth is, if they really believed, they would live differently because the heart of the gospel is in demonstration of God's love. The Heavenly Father sends His only Son to die on the cross in our place for our sins. And Romans says that God demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we stood in rebellion to Him, while we still want to have nothing to do with Him, Christ died for us. It's in the cross alone that ultimately proves the love of God to us, not the providential circumstances of our lives. Guys, we cannot allow ourselves to be tricked The serpent seeks to deceive. We cannot think that if things are going well with us, well, then we can be sure that God loves us. Our lives can often be dark. Our lives can be so painful. Things do not always go well for us. We have to, in those moments, look to the sacrifice of the cross, the demonstration God gave there of his love. That's the proof that you and I need. This is the truth you need to hear if the lie is to be dispelled. If Jesus has died for me, if Jesus Christ has died for you, then you can be sure that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will stop at absolutely nothing to do you good. Romans 8, 32 says this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice how Calvary-oriented, cross-focused, and Christ-centered the gospel is. But Calvary, with all its darkness, with its sense of abandonment, is a fuller revelation of God's grace. Because it's not only the high point of Jesus's obedience, right? He became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It is also the high point of the father's love for his son. For this reason, the father loves me, Jesus says in John 10, because I lay down my life. The moment Jesus cried out, my God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Was the very moment that his father through his tears was singing. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. All of this took place in order to crush the serpent's head. To squeeze from his fangs that poisonous lie that still deadens our hearts. And to cause us to become fearful, doubting believers. Be certain, Coram Deo, that Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the snake crusher. And God has good in store for you. Recall what Adam was created to be. He was created to be the gardener. Everything God made was good. But everything in the world was not yet garden. God wanted Adam to exercise dominion by expanding this garden. Having given him a garden to begin with, God was saying, okay, Adam, here you go. I've given you a start. Adam, go and garden the whole earth for the glory of our father. But he failed. He was created to make the dust fruitful, but instead he himself became dust. The Garden of Eden became the wilderness of the world. But do you remember how John's gospel recorded what happened on the morning of Jesus' resurrection? Right, The tomb is open, the stones rolled away. Jesus has walked out of the grave. He's risen. The women go to the tomb to prepare the body, to anoint the body. He was the beginning of the new creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. But Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize Jesus when Jesus comes to speak to her. Instead, she spoke to him. And the Gospels tell us (laughs) she thought he was the gardener. Who else would he be at that time in the morning? Is he the gardener? Yes, he is the gardener. He is the second man, the last Adam, who is now beginning to restore the garden. Later that day, Jesus, he shows his disciples where the nails had pierced his hand and where the spear had been drawn into his side. The serpent indeed had his head crushed. But he had certainly crushed Jesus' heel. But now he's planning to turn that wilderness back into a garden. Soon he's going to send his disciples into the world with the good news of the victory. All authority on earth that was lost by Adam is now regained by Christ. The world is now being reclaimed for Jesus the conqueror. And in the closing scenes of the book of Revelation, John sees the new earth coming down from heaven. And what does it look like? A garden in which the tree of life stands. One day, all of this will come to pass. The seed has come and his heel oozed blood from being crushed. But the serpent's head has been crushed in the process. Jesus reigns and he has delivered us from the power of sin. And we will now be more than conquerors through him who loves us. The seed of the woman has become the snake crusher. So how have you and I believed the lie? How is that that? Same lie working its way into your life. How are you believing on a daily basis? Man, God's not good. He doesn't want good for you. Friend, I would invite you and encourage you this morning. Don't believe the lie. Believe the truth of the gospel. See our risen Lord. See the snake crusher. Rejoice. Revel in his goodness. Revel in his grace. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we come before you just in awe that you would love us, that you would pursue us. God, that you would defeat our common enemy. Jesus, so often we hear the voice of the serpent, the lie of the evil one. Our hearts are drawn away from you. God, would you lead us back to life in you? Would you help us to see that there is welcome, that Jesus has crushed the serpent, that we no longer have to believe this lie, but we can believe the truth of the gospel. God, would you send us out from this place to speak this truth to others, to declare the victory has been won. The gardener has come and he makes all things new. We're so thankful for the hope we have in the gospel, Lord. We pray all this with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the finished work of the snake-crushing king, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.